This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. Welcome back to the Canadian Investor Podcast. Uh, I'm here today with a different co-host. I'm here with uh, Dan Foch or Daniel Foch, obviously, uh, from our Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Um, Dan, how are you doing? It's pretty uh, long time coming, this special episode. You want to let them know who you are and what we'll be talking about? Absolutely. Um, uh, my name is Daniel Foch. I am one of two hosts of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, which is the real estate side quest, I suppose, of, of the Canadian Investor Podcast uh, Network. And you know, on our show, we talk a lot about specifically direct investing in real estate, but also some some other types of investing in real estate through GPLP structures and public markets and private markets. Um, and, and today we're going to be exploring the impact of, of commercial real estate. There's been a lot of ominous headlines in the commercial real estate space, um, especially coming out of certain kind of ground zero spaces for this correction happening in the US. Um, I think we're all pr pretty familiar with what's happening in the housing market in Canada, but I think the commercial real estate space is one that's been very slow to evolve. And it's one that a lot of people aren't super in touch with because the data, as we learned trying to make this episode, is not exceptionally easy to find. So I guess we can give a quick overview of what we're going to talk about today, and then I'll dive into sort of compartmentalizing what these different asset classes are. Yeah, exactly. And the goal here, we're trying something a little different. So we'll do the first part on obviously this podcast, a Canadian real estate investor. And then for the second part, it'll be uploaded on the Canadian real estate investor. So uh, if definitely if you hear this, you'll want to switch over when the uh, second part comes over. And we'll go over a lot of different things. So we'll start off by just going over and Dan will do a, I'm sure, a really good job at this because that's his... Uh, I guess space of expertise is probably the best uh, way to say it is we'll go over and define what is commercial real estate because I think a lot of people tend to automatically associate that with office real estate and unfortunately it's pretty it's a much broader space right Absolutely yes and, and I think it is one where the impact of different trends happening in in the the broad market you know things like e-commerce work from home being obviously major themes in the in the post-pandemic society um, have had really disproportionate impacts positive and negative on different asset classes and so it's you know I I call the real estate market right now very much a, a stock pickers market it's it's one where if you know if you're a betting man you could make a bet on or against an asset class and and be very successful over the next 10 to 20 years by comparison to somebody who bet on a different asset class. Um, and so just quickly, the commercial real estate space encompasses a, a variety of property types. That's office buildings. So your offices, this is where you're hearing about a lot of office towers in your San Francisco and LA markets, especially um, having defaults uh, among big names like Blackstone and Brookfield, uh, defaulting on debt and walking away from properties in, in certain cities in the US. Um, the major headwind, obviously, for the office world is return to work is a big question mark. Um, and the renewal of a lot of these large leases um, for these office buildings is is a proportionately large question mark based on how those reopen. Um, next on the list would be retail. So retail properties are used for selling goods. Consumers go to use them to buy produced goods. Pretty simple. Um, shopping centers, malls, strip malls, and, and actually kind of pre-COVID the future of the enclosed mall was a big conversation and it still is in the states because um you know e-commerce be becoming a big headwind for retail um and but and in canada it's especially interesting because enclosed malls are actually becoming almost the center point of these new ur newly urbanized communities but in a lot of these kind of more flyover areas in the states um they're they're falling into these states of obsolescence almost um, it, the next pieces would be industrial and multi multifamily properties, both two exceptionally hot asset classes in Canada. So industrial is where they build stuff, um, manufacturing, production, storage, a lot of it's, um, food related and distribution related. Um, this can include warehouses, distribution centers, factories, industrial parks, and flex spaces. You see a lot of warehousing and a lot of, um, a lot of that 
is becoming increasingly popular with the the theme of onshoring. Industrial is like the second tightest or tightest asset class in Canada on a vacancy rate basis. We've seen like almost tripling of rents in the past five to 10 year period and vacancies below 1% in a lot of in your major cities, Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, below 2%, let's say. Multifamily is basically the same thing. So this is houses in Canada um, or, or uh, apartment buildings, um, complexes that are intended basically for residential use. Um, the rent environment, the rent escalation environment is a little bit more limited by rent control, which is a big popular thing in Canada. Um, in, in, you know, we're a lot less landlord friendly than the U.S., um, but similarly, vacancy, according to CMHC, is below 1% in many major markets in Canada. And I would say around that kind of 2 to 3% range in, in, most, in most markets in Canada, which is really just a reflection of that, the housing crisis. Um, the, the other ones that I'm not gonna, we're not, probably not going to dive into too much in, for the purposes of this discussion are sort of your hospitality, so hotels, healthcare, mixed use, and then sort of special purpose stuff. Um, and, and there's, but the, but that sort of covers kind of the spectrum of, of commercial properties, because again, I think a lot of people just say commercial real estate and they think office and it's probably painting the market right now, especially with an unfair brush. Cause it's a very small portion of the, the total universe of commercial property. Yeah. And that definitely seems to have been the focus. I, I feel like a lot of people are interchanging commercial real estate and office space. And we'll double click on that. We'll do a full section on office space so people can get a better understanding what's actually happening there. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about debt because we've been, I definitely have been getting some questions about what you quickly referred to for Brookfield walking away from uh, a property, well, a pretty well-known property. So the Y Plaza in LA. Um, so it's important, I think, for people to understand that a lot of the commercial real estate has non-recourse loans, which essentially are loans that are backed by the property, but there's no recourse to the owners of the actual property in the case I was mentioning, like a Brookfield. And have you heard, like, I know you're pretty well connected. Have you seen lenders trying to kind of change that non-recourse loan now as some of these, uh, you know, uh, these mortgages are coming due or some of that debt is coming due? And if they're refinancing or lenders requiring that there is some kind of recourse just in case the properties go down in value? Yeah, I think you're definitely starting to see a bit more of a credit contraction happening in the, in the US side than in Canada, although I would anticipate it'll likely happen in Canada as well. Um, lenders are just becoming a lot more picky. And in the States, I mean, it's tough because they can't really engineer a recourse environment overnight. Um, you know, you can't just as a lender... There's so many different institutions and there's always somebody else willing to do a non-recourse facility on the same product. So it's it, it comes down to underwriting the product better. And so that means, you know, we just did an episode on our show about debt service coverage ratio as an example. Um, how capable... And that's that's used in financial analysis as well. How capable are these assets of servicing the loan and servicing the loan against an increasing interest rate environment if, if we're the lender? Because it's not that they don't have recourse. They just don't have a personal guarantee. They can't chase exactly. that person down to shake them loose for the money forever. But they can take possession of the asset, which is the big difference in the US. Hmm. In Canada, we only have foreclosure. That's called foreclosure in... Um, in Alberta, a couple of other provinces, but Alberta is where it's most common. Ontario has something called power of sale. So the, the lender actually executes the ability to force somebody to sell a property. Whereas in in Canada, um, or sorry, in, uh, in the US, foreclosure means the lender actually takes possession of the property if the person's in default. And so you're starting to see, and we're see, we've seen this happen in, amongst lenders in Canada, even on development properties, a lot of lenders becoming operators or executors on developments. And I think that that's probably going to be a continued theme happening over the next several years in commercial real estate. Um, and so the thought pro process is, can we underwrite the asset better to protect ourselves in a recourse scenario rather than you know, trying to push for recourse because the people are just not going to do the deals if, if lenders are saying, we need to be able to, to, to sue you or collect from you or we need a personal guarantee. 
Yeah, exactly. And for people who might not be super familiar, just so you and like a better understanding of what's happening here. So if you take Brookfield, for example, so they had defaulted on the loan that they had on the EY Plaza in LA. So in essentially, they had a couple of options. They could try to renegotiate potentially better terms with the lender, or they can just decide to walk away from the property, essentially giving it back to the lender. Why it's not great when you're a lender in that situation is... If a company is walking or an individual is walking away from a property, it's most likely because it's not performing well. If it's not performing well, uh, the value of the property is probably um, <laughs> not doing quite well. So obviously, it'll depend on the loan to value ratio and versus what the actual market value is of the property. But oftentimes, this is what they'll do. And there's been other example. Blackstone did the same way for a uh, same thing. They walked away from 1740 Broadway in Midtown Manhattan, which was definitely an older building in need of massive investment to modernize it so it would have cost several hundred million dollars to kind of revamp it and make it almost in a class a type of property and you also had uh, one that made headline columbia property trust defaulted on 1.7 billion of non-recourse debt secured over seven properties back in february i believe this was in the washington dc area so it just shows you that there are definitely some dominoes falling in the u.s but in the grand scheme of things it's still relatively um i would say a non-issue at this point it's on the radar of people but it's still a drop in the bucket if you ask me what do you think I would agree. And I think, you know, at the beginning of the logic behind somebody defaulting, I mean, a lot in a lot of cases, you know, another recourse mechanism is cross collateralizing assets. Um, and they haven't done this in, in some situations with some of these landlords because they're strong borrowers. And so, you know, the, the, you mentioned at the beginning that they could be almost using this as an opportunity to renegotiate the terms. And when I'm looking at you know, landlords at the scale of a of a Blackstone or a Brookfield, I'm going to make the assumption that that's the likely outcome here. I mean, there on the EY Plaza that you used as an example, um, it was a CMBS package, so basically like a syndicated loan originated by Morgan Stanley and Wells Fargo, so large financial institutions as well. But there are examples of similar deals where you know your Brookfields and Blackstones are similar in market cap to the lenders that are lending on these deals. And so they actually have the ability to to bully or to negotiate. And I think that by not paying you know, not not paying the loan is potentially a strategy that that really gets people to the table about, okay, let's be serious about repositioning this thing because we're in a market where and this is something we're going to talk about a lot, the office asset is a big question mark and we kind of need to work on solving this problem together yeah exactly and i mean one thing too that i know the lenders are not necessarily all banks but let's just talk about banks for a second they you know they issue loans they're not in the business of being landlords so it's not a great thing for them to actually take possession of these properties and having to operate them and i will go a bit later in detail but there has been some regional banks that have been selling off loans in the U.S. at a loss, so commercial real estate loans. Um, so far, the ones I've seen were about like you know high nineties on the dollar. So I think there was one ninety two cents on the dollar, which is not too bad. Uh, but that's something that you might see a bit more as they're trying to shore up their balance sheet for the most part. And I came across, I know I had shared that with you, the Cohen and Stearns report that was published in late March. And this was definitely focused in the U.S., but I took some interesting tidbits out of it because we've heard, I know I've seen it, I don't know about you, but this $4.5 trillion figure on income producing properties in the U.S. And I think it's made headlines a few times. Have you seen that too? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's like a lot of people use it as like this fear mongering kind of thing where it's like a lot of these are, I think there's like trillions of dollars worth of CRE loans that are supposed to turn over in the next five years. And so the idea like the or the, the headline that a lot of people are saying is like, oh, it's 2008, but for commercial real estate. And I'm like, "I, I don't know if that's necessarily a good comparison, but. No, exactly. And like you mentioned, some commercial real estate is actually performing quite well. 
so I'll just share a few stats and I'll show uh, some graphics here for uh, those who are seeing video as well. So the 25 largest U.S. banks own about 13% of all commercial real estate debt and their exposure as a percentage of assets is actually quite low at 4%. Regional banks, which have obviously have been in the headlines since March, they are definitely a bit more at risk. They own 31.5% of all commercial real estate debt and their exposure as a percentage of asset is around 20%. Office real estate is more at risk, but also represents only 17% of income producing property loans versus 44% for multifamily, for example. So multifamily is still a big, big, it's like close to half. So I think, you know, when you see that headline, like you just mentioned, I don't know, it doesn't, <laughs> it's uh, definitely misleading because when you think that almost half of that $4.5 trillion is in multifamily that has super low vacancy rates, I think it's it's hard to make the case or at least uh, the fear mongering that's been happening. For sure. I think that when you hear the word commercial real estate, most people aren't thinking half of that is apartment buildings. and <laughs> And so... You know, everybody's thinking, oh, like we're going to see a decimation of the the office and retail environment when they hear commercial all of this commercial real estate risk. The you know, it's I think I think it's kind of fascinating the multi. I think for the multifamily risk, um, the big risk there is people overpaying in the past three years, five years. But but during COVID, I think we saw this huge rent escalation. We saw these massive you know, societal shifts in where people wanted to live, where people wanted to consume real estate. And that put a lot of pressure on the rental market um, in Canada and in the US. And similarly, just as an inflationary environment, we saw rental rates grow substantially um, in, in all over the world, not just... And you're seeing lineups of people for apartments in different areas. Um, and so I, I think that there is a bit of headwind for the multifamily asset in in this space but i don't think it's non-payment of rents i just think it's you know people are probably a little bit too levered or will become levered as the valuations start to come down or too 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 highly exposed so as your valuation starts to come down on an asset and let's say the the asset's worth a million dollars today and you owe eight hundred thousand dollars on it and now because cap rates are going up and we'll talk about cap rates and how they value properties um if cap rates go up, that means the values of properties are coming down based on their yield. And this basically means that more and more uh, people who, who own property will see their leverage point get higher. So if you owed $800,000 and now your property value drops from a million to $800,000, now you went from being at 80% loan to value to 100% loan to value. And this creates a risk scenario for lenders this creates a risk scenario for borrowers, um, and and that that to me is probably the the more risky situation in in multifamily. I'm going to talk. I'm going to um, mention a tweet that I that I put in from from that uh, when we get to it. Um, but in in the Canadian space, because that's kind of where we're seeing a little bit of that non recourse environment happening in in Canada as well. Yeah, and that's a great point. And just to add on to what I was saying earlier from that Cohen report. So they also mentioned one of the key points at 50. The average in terms of loan to value ratio is about 50 to 60%. Um, so definitely, you know, there is some room, obviously, uh, as a whole, as an aggregate, uh, like, like you just mentioned, you know, some examples may be, you know, much closer to 100%, but I, from the aggregate, it's not as bad as people were showing. And, you know, they did mention they could see, especially in office real estate, up to a 20% downside for the valuation of those office towers. So that's something else to keep in mind. And what I'm showing here is essentially how the commercial real estate, how it's represented in terms of percentage in the US. And like we mentioned, 44% is multifamily. After that, the second largest is office, but it's uh, down to 16.7%. And then the last one, I guess there's other. Um, after that, there's healthcare that's also relatively high at 9%. But it just goes to show that, you know, you have to be careful with the, the headlines that we see because the actual figures are, you know, they're definitely different. Yeah, for sure. I, I think that most people just don't have a, an idea of what the composition of 
of multifamily assets are. It is interesting though in Canada because I think that our composition might actually be a little bit less skewed towards multifamily because we haven't been building apartment buildings since like the 60s and 70s. Like purpose-built rentals just don't, they don't really pencil out in Canada or in, in major urban markets in Canada. Um, the policy environment hasn't been designed exceptionally well for it. And we build uh, high-rise condo buildings to sell to condo investors, uh, you know, and we most most recently did an episode on our, our show about how all of these investors are actually cash flow negative. The headlines say losing money in quotation marks, but, you know, that's unrealized whether or not they've, they've actually lost money depends on how they exit. Um, but our high rise built form environment in Canada depends on basically developers being able to have this infinite demand of investors willing to absorb assets at ca- at a cash flow negative basis. That's what our purpose built rental environment looks like. So you have individual condo investors holding all of our purpose built rental stock, let's call it. And so you don't have built all of these tall buildings with hundreds of units in them. They quite simply aren't commercial real estate assets. They're individual real estate assets or they they show up in the housing market. When you look at US data, it's a little bit different because you have like you said almost 50% um, in, in apartment buildings, um, in the Canadian environment, I would say it's a little bit less skewed. I think the ownership environment is more skewed to, and we know we're going to discuss this pensions and different, um, you know, different, different types of owners. Um, so you basically have individual owners, your mom and pop landlords owning a lot of our housing stock. And then you have institutional owners owning most of our commercial real estate. Um, and probably more well capitalized institutional owners owning most of our commercial real estate in Canada. Because one of the big questions that we wanted to address on this was like, could this happen here? Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. And I'll just mention a couple other things. So to build on what you were saying. So in the US, I had mentioned you are starting to see some um, some banks selling off some of their commercial real estate exposure, but it's typically more office space, even construction loans. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, PacWest sold uh, loans to Kennedy Wilson. They sold it, like I had uh, referenced a bit earlier, at 92 cents on the dollar. And what happened afterwards, and PacWest has been in the news, uh, not for great reason. So it's been one of those regional banks that has been definitely struggling in the aftermath of Silicon Valley Bank. While their stock actually Pop twenty percent after the deal was announced, so it definitely um, <laughs> opened the eyes of a lot of other regional banks that do have commercial real estate loans on their books to potentially sell some of those to increase their liquidity. Um, they, I definitely saw a few that are starting to move from. Um, hold to maturity asset, these types of loan to available for sale. So when the, the banks actually change that uh, classification, it does show the intent of potentially selling that in the future. So that's something uh, just to keep in mind. There has been some development in the US, but it's still relatively isolated. So it's not very widespread just yet. And the last thing I'll mention here and uh, before I we go on to our um, or you give us a bit more uh, context for the Canadian market here is that real estate has just not performed all that well on the public markets uh, since last year. So if you go back to March of 2022, when central banks started uh, their rate hike uh, campaign very aggressively, as we all know at this point, um, commercial or real estate as a whole, but it's commercial real estate for REITs that are listed in the US is down 15% during that period of time. And we're actually looking at total returns here. So it's not great. Whereas the S&P 500 is slightly breaking even. So definitely real estate as a whole class has struggled. And that includes data REITs, which have performed quite well during that period of time. Uh, Definitely with some tailwinds from the AI space and the whole the hype going on right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know the other piece that you mentioned is is that we're starting to see this sh- shifting around in the commercial loan books to increase liquidity to shore up liquidity a little bit. And so, to me, very much selling off some of these this debt, selling off some of these assets, is is almost preventative maintenance for a lot of these uh, lending institutions to not see duration mismatches like what brought down Silicon Valley as an example, to not see um, overexposure to individual asset classes that brought down Signature Bank, for example, big multifamily lender. Um, And so I think that 
the more actually that we are seeing things transacting in this kind of 90 cents on the dollar range um, is every time that one of those moves and it takes some of that um, longer term credit product risk off of the the books for some of these institutions, the, the less likely that we see some of these 50 cents on the dollar transactions down the road. And we need to see this moving around of, of things. That's, that's the market kind of rebalancing itself and trying to get to a healthier place. Um, so the question I think that is on a lot of people's minds and that you and I probably get asked a lot when we share these headlines and talk about these headlines on the show is, could this happen in Canada? And if so, you know, what city would be our poster child for it? Like we're seeing in the States, California very much being, um, mentioned a lot, um, as a result of, you know, I think changes in migration patterns, differences in, um, you know, political, uh, environments and, uh, businesses, you know, tax, uh, tax brackets, businesses wanting to move to different areas. Um, are we, is there risk that something similar could happen in Canada? And if so, where there, like my, my general answer to the question would be, no, I don't. I don't think that this could happen in Canada in commercial real estate. I think that there is headwinds for for commercial real estate in Canada. It's a, yeah. That's the yeah, episode. Yeah. That's all you end need of, to know. End of the show. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think that there are, are are places where we're going to see a lot of risk become realized, and we've the places where we've already seen risk realized. You know, Calgary being a great example of a market that is massively oversupplied on the office side. They actually have. And one of the big questions we get when we see, you know, and, and people, all the geniuses on TikTok and Twitter and, and in my Instagram comments, when I talk about um, these commercial buildings being vague or um, defaulting or like, oh, like we just need to convert these all the housing <laughs> units. We need housing. So are, they, I mean, uh, are they the same they, ones that thought that uh, the Bank of Canada would be cutting rates at this point? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. It, it's just funny. It's like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. I didn't, I, nobody thought of that one. And it's, <laughs> it must be so easy to, to do. So wh- why don't we just give you these, you know, co- these uh, vacant commercial buildings and you can just do it, right? Um, I mean, Calgary right now is converting 6 million square feet of office into residential. Like Calgary's commercial or their office and um, market was like at like twenty over twenty percent vacancy for a period of time, and that that was the vacancy was already bad, um, heading into COVID, and then COVID obviously work from home and all of this stuff just exacerbated their existing problems. But I think Calgary is a great example of what you could expect to happen, probably globally in downtown cores over the next. Um, decade, several decades, even as we get to hybrid workplace, work from home, et cetera. So your A class, or now they even have like this kind of triple A class um, office is, is still doing exceptionally well, very tight, commanding high rental rates, well-located uh, high CapEx that the landlords are putting into these buildings, making them beautiful. And um, tenants are still there and they're built and they're creating spaces that they can convince people to come to the, to the office five days a week. And yeah. Do you yeah. want to explain the difference a little bit just quickly between a and B? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, your, your a would just be very centrally located, high quality, like, you know, the, the finishes when you walk into it's the stuff where you, you know, the, the Canadian cities are shooting uh, these New York style, um, doc, or uh, New York style television shows like Harvey Specter walking into, I think it's uh, from from Suits. He's walking into uh, First Canadian Place, I think it is, in or Commerce Court in downtown Toronto. So these really really nice office buildings that are gorgeous, that are that are great meeting places, great gathering places. Um, and then you get to your B class, which is really just very utilitarian office space. Nothing exceptionally wrong with it. It just hasn't been updated as recently as a. Um, it's not as well located as your A office space. Um, and then you could, it's, it's kind of just a quality rating really. So A is better than B and then there is kind of your C. Um, and then there are fringe sort of like sexier office categories, like allied has kind of given, been given its own, they would be an A class, um, office space, but they've been given their own or what they were a period of time called, called class I office space, industrial converted office space, all the brick and beam stuff that was really popular with tech companies. But, but yeah, so I think your B offices are very much going to become c- 
conversion potential, adaptive reuse potential. Um, the problem is in order for them to get there, they need to be vacant and their valuations need to be so dismal that the economics make sense to convert them to something else, to, to bring them to a new highest and best use, which in, mo- in many cases is going to become housing. Um, and, and to contextualize it, like Calgary is a great example. You need a market, an office market that is so bad that, you know, if 20 plus percent vacancy, that offices are trading at such cheap valuations that, it, you know, if you, could, if, if you can buy an office building at 100 bucks a square foot, then yeah, it's going to make sense for you to spend the 350, $400, $500 per square foot that it's going to cost to convert because it's not cheap to do this. The floor, just for context from an engineer, purely engineering perspective, think about the way an office building is laid out, the size of it. Like they're like a one acre floor plate. They have all of their um, bathrooms in the middle wrapped around the elevator column. And then they're, the windows can't open them. And the windows are very far away from that that plumbing. And so it, if you were going to try and fill it with units for people to live in, they would be either bowling alleys, basically, or they would have bedrooms that wouldn't have enough natural light or whatever. And so there's there's challenges. Uh, there's a lot of challenges to, to, to do that. And the way to solve those is to spend a lot of money. For the most part, Canadian office market hasn't got to the point where it makes sense to spend that money. Um, so that's example kind of number one. And, and I think it's kind of like that rate cutting. The rate cutting thing is a good good example of people saying, oh, rates are going to come down. It's like, be very careful what you wish for, right? And and be very careful what you wish for with these office buildings being converted to residential space. It, your, your downtowns are going to be, they have to get very, very bad before they get better if we're, if converting office to residential space is the, is the ultimate outcome of what's going to happen with the office market in, in the world. Um, so that's, that's probably one big thing, one big theme that's worth thinking about. The next thing that I think is interesting in Canada is, is this is an example from apartment financier on Twitter. Um, it says multifamily cap rates got so low that because of DSC or debt service coverage limits, buyers were only qualifying with 65% loan to value at CMHC. However, at 65% loan to value, CMHC waives personal guarantees. So they're creating a non-recourse loan. With cap rates assumingly blowing out, CMHC lenders will be stuck with some non-recourse low debt service coverage loans. And so this is fascinating from my perspective because we saw this huge run up in multifamily valuations, CMHC really supporting that with their credit product right now in Canada. CMHC is Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, by the way, wholly funded by taxpayers. It's an insurance pro- product that home uh, first-time homebuyers can use or, or any owner-occupier homebuyer can use. But they also, their primary mandate is to create housing. Um, and so they also lend to multifamily, or they actually, sorry, they don't lend to, they insure multifamily deals for other lenders to lend more safely on. So multifamily assets were trading in like a three and a half to 5% cap rate range last year. Cap rate, by the way, is net operating income divided by purchase price, kind of like an EPS or something like that, like some sort of price ratio. Um, it's a metric that basically deter- determines the, the return that a property transacts at. And now they're trading in probably over the 5% range. I've even seen stuff selling in Toronto over 5%. And that's what he's talking about, these cap rates blowing out. So valuations are going up. And I think they're going to, or sorry, valuations are going down. Cap rates yeah. are going okay. up. Okay. Yeah. And I, yeah. So I think, um, there's a, there's a, a risk now that that'll continue to go up. The cap rates will continue to go up. Valuations will continue to come down. That to me, that's, that's kind of like the, the big risk exposure. I know I, I covered a lot there, but the risk exposure in the Canadian market. Yeah. I guess though, if the cap rates go up, I mean, I guess the, the upside for that is it becomes more and more attractive for new investors to come in because then investments start making a lot more sense. Right. If the credit environment allows it to, I suppose, right? Like we're still at a point where a cap rate in a 5% doesn't really transact exceptionally well with credit at five and a half or 5%, um, unless people are going at lower loan to value. And that kind of defeats the purpose of real estate in a lot of cases, because most people buy real estate for leverage. So if you look at major correct, corrective periods, like typically the cap rate is trades about 
400 to 500 basis points above the Canada 10-year bond yield. And right now it's at 268 basis points above. So to get back into that channel, either bond yields need to revert, which probably will happen in the fullness of time, or cap rates need to go up, which means prices for these assets need to come down. Um, And I guess that the next question would be like, do we see any municipalities in Canada actually having the risk for for this to, to happen specifically. I think most of the risk has been realized in the commercial real estate space in um, in Calgary. Your question is, you know, does it does this happen in a place like Toronto? Does this happen in a place like Vancouver or Montreal? From my perspective, I think that this very much depends on what happens with the reopening of the workplace. And I know we were going to talk about it, I think... I think after we get through sort of what you were you were mentioning, like pension funds and all of that stuff, but I think that it is interesting from my perspective who owns the Canadian um, a lot of the Canadian office space and why there might be like I, I have this almost like not a conspiratorial thought process, but just this idea that like the the, the central bank is very incentivized to get people back to the workplace to, or to to get unemployment up so that employers are back in in a negotiating position to get people back to the office. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let me, uh, I think you have the wrong hat on and <laughs> you need your tinfoil, yeah, hat, not a baseball. Cap. <laughs> um, yeah, and no, you have a really interesting graphic to that. You had in terms of the average national cap rates by market, which is pretty interesting because it varies pretty widely. Yeah, I would say, you know, like you can see, I guess Vancouver's at 160 basis points, um, above the bond yield, which is 112 basis points below the 15-year average. Um, Calgary's 316 above, um, which is 76 below their their 15-year average. Toronto's 231 basis points above, which is uh, 108 basis points below their 15-year average, and and Montreal is 246 basis points above the the 10-year bond yield. And so, again, it's just like the question becomes, if we see reversion, if we see cap rate um, reversion to those traditional channels or towards those 15-year averages, because I think to me, it doesn't matter how far above the the 10-year bond yield they are. It matters how far above their, or or, sorry, below their 15-year average they are. And if they revert to even even halfway towards their 15-year average, I think there could be a lot of pain on the valuation side in commercial real estate um, to, to be seen in, in most of those municipalities. Um, and I, I think, you know, we were going to get into next the, I guess, the, the big Canadian pension plans and their ownership of, of, of real estate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I had uh, it's not easy huh, to find that information. So it's not like yeah, you they can make Google it. it. It seems <laughs> like there's it seems like there might be an incentive for them to to have it a little bit hidden. Yeah, exactly. So anyone interesting in finding that info, you'll literally have to go into the annual reports from the large pension funds. And I did four over here, uh, four large Canadian pension funds. So I looked at the Canadian pension plan, QPP, the Quebec uh, pension plan are two by far the two largest teachers, which is not that far behind. And I also looked at OMERS. So in terms of CPP, uh, it's the largest. So it has $570 billion in total assets. And that's at when I'm talking about the assets and all the figures here, this is just the latest information from their annual report. So depending on where it was taken, I know CPP is as of March 31st of this year. Uh, QPP with the Caisse de Placement des Dépôts du Québec is as of December of last year. So just keep that in mind. It may not be an exact same time screenshot, but it should give people a good idea. So CPP, $570 billion in assets, and 9% of CPP assets were in real estate, which is around $52 billion. Um, it's not overly massive. However, if you start digging into the annual report, and you'll notice that in terms of asset class, they also have 13% in credit assets. So if you dig into those credit assets, you actually realize that 14% of that is actually in real estate. So their exposure um, is definitely higher than just a 9%. Uh, maybe, you know, around 13 to 15% is a bit more accurate. 
And it's not all in Canada, so CPP has it spread out fairly well. Some of the other plans, like I'll go over, they're definitely more concentrated in Canada in terms of real estate exposure. And all of them have very little exposure when it comes to REITs or the public markets. Um, any comments on that one, Dan, before I go through the list? Uh, no, I just think the, you know, the, the interesting part is when I look at some of these graphs, it's, you know, you see that they're invested in public and private equities as well. And that could be in in some of your, you know, your traded funds. So they could have more exposure to real estate than we're actually seeing. Um, but, but yeah, I would agree. I think that relatively small exposure in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, exactly. And I'm just showing here for those on Patreon just to give you an idea of what the uh, the graphs, what I was talking about. And yeah, that's and I'll talk about the issue of I like that you talk about private equity because there is some valuation issues that do come into mind that uh, definitely raise some eyebrows. But I'll go over uh, the Caisse de dépôt de placement du Québec, which manages QPP. Um, they are also a massive uh, pension fund with $402 billion in assets. So if you're a Quebec resident, um, instead of getting money from CPP when you retire, you get it from QPP. Uh, it's one of the things that the province of Quebec manages on their own. And I grew up in Quebec for most of my life, so up until I was 22, and we had this joke, uh, this running joke that Quebec likes to do things differently. So <laughs> it's always uh, a little different in Quebec, but um, you know, I, I do still have a lot of family there. I love Quebec, so it was just uh, just kind of a little running joke that we used to have. But if you go to them as of December 31st, 2022, they had 12% of their assets in real estate, and that's what you'll start kind of see is I would say I've been looked at all the Canadian pension plans, obviously, all the various ones, there's tons of them out there. But I would say, you know, probably around 13 to 15% in terms of actual real estate exposure, whether there's also some indirect exposure, obviously, it could go up or not. But just by the research I did here, that seems to be the, the sweet spot. So QPP has $48 billion worth of real estate. Um, and now the next one, teachers, obviously they made headlines with, uh, what was it, FTX, where they had invested yeah. in FTX a little bit. And I just wanted to touch on that quick because it's easy to see headlines and then think about the worst. And that was across, obviously, all the major mainstream media out there. But the reality is for teachers, it was just... It was just peanuts. They have $247 billion in assets. Um, so it was just a tiny, tiny portion of their assets that were impaired because of FTX. Um, teachers, I mean, they have $28.1 billion in real estate assets, which is around 12%. That's compared to $26.3 billion a year before or 11%. So it has increased. Um, they also have a public equity portfolio, but that is a very small portion is allocated to REITs. Uh, that public equity portfolio is around $22 billion. Less than 1% of that is in public REITs. Now, they make most of their real estate investment with something that probably your listeners definitely I'm sure aware of. Uh, so a company called Cadillac Fairview. So it's only owned by teachers. They're a large uh, real estate managers in Canada. They they own different kinds of real estate, but they are quite famous in Canada for Canadian retail. So for those in Ottawa, you might be familiar with the Rideau Center. Uh, they own that. In Toronto, they own the Eaton Center. But they... Um, in terms of all their investment, it's 43% Canadian retail, 22% Canadian office, 11% in the US, and then the rest of the world for the, the remaining types of investment. And they did have something pretty interesting in their annual report. They said that um, they attributed the losses in their portfolio to rising interest rates uh, for their real estate portfolio, which had a negative return last year of 3.5%. However, I think we'll touch on that a little later where there seems to be a little bit of a disconnect between publicly traded real estate and private real estate. Um, anything you want to add before I touch on Omer's quick? No, I, th I think, you know, like for most of our listeners, people who are working in the, you know, in your financial districts, you know, you see these names on office towers and, you know, the pension funds, it's not that they go out of their way to not disclose that they own these assets, but it is always interesting to to know, okay, you see your Cadillac Fairviews, you see, you know, Oxford, which I think you're going to get into, 
you know, yeah. you see your Bentall Kennedy or I guess Bentall Green Oak now, who is like a, a Sun Life, I think. So all of these different, you know, owners that you see. But if you start looking into to who owns all of these office towers, um, in a lot of cases, it always goes back to basically a large financial institution, either a pension or a life co or insurance company. Um, and just worth having that understanding and kind of like following that chain of title for people just to get an understanding for who does have the exposure to these assets. Yeah, exactly. And one thing about CF is that I don't know if it's across their portfolio. I don't know them in and out, but from the properties I've seen anecdotally, they seem to have pretty high quality assets because I talked about the Rideau Center in Ottawa. Um, it has one of the lowest vacancy rates in terms of the big malls that we have here. Uh, it was fully renovated a bit before the pandemic, super nice mall. Um, they just lost Nordstrom, which is not great, but um, I know the Eaton Center is kind of in that same type of class. So I definitely have seen, at least in Ottawa, I don't know if it's like that in your era in the GTA, but uh, malls that are more like class A malls are um, they look in much better shape in terms of occupancy that you can just see when you go into those malls so they have less open space for lease versus the kind of more class B or C malls yeah absolutely I think um, you know they're if you look at the largest owners in, in Canadian real estate, it is mostly like you, um, you see here, Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. And these are some of the biggest in the world, by the way. Like you go to European publication, IPE Real Estate. Number three on that list is uh, Case de, de Depot et Placement du Québec. And then... You got um, it. Was that okay? Well yeah, my friend, yeah, that's my, good. That's good. My, yeah. uh, mine is a little bit better than Nick's, I think. Um, <laughs> Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. So that's Cadillac Fairview, um, Canada Pension Plan Investment Board, um, OMERS, uh, public public sector pension investment board, BC pension, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It goes all the way down. So it's all, and these are all people who are in the global leadership of real estate ownership. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's important to remember, right? Because we talk about Canada, we've talked about the US too, but as a rule, central banks around the world have been quite coordinated in rising interest rates. So I would say there, there is risk you know, not only in Canada, I think you can probably make the case in Europe and other countries as well. Um, I know they have geographical diversification. By the end of the day, if central banks are kind of in lockstep around the world, it's going to mean a higher cost in terms of, you know, for getting loans on those property. And to touch quickly on OMER, so they have over $100 billion in assets and um, they own mostly through Oxford properties like you reference, and they have 17% of their, their assets in real estate. So definitely the highest in terms of percentage, which would be around 21 billion uh, if we just take as a percentage of the total assets. And what I was alluding to earlier was that there seems to really be a disconnect between publicly traded real estate and private real estate. We had recorded a REIT episode, and I remember I had mentioned that where the uh, NA REIT, which is the U.S. Uh, REIT Association, for their 2023 projection, they had shown that you know REITs had performed poorly in the U.S. in 2022 because of higher interest rates. Um, you don't have to look very far for that. It's pretty obvious. But they were saying that this discrepancy between REITs and private real estate was there was a, a gap of about 40% in valuation. And unfortunately, it hasn't changed that much from what I can see. And I saw an article in the financial post that I read this week, and it was quoting Carl Gomez, who is the chief economist at CoStar. And he was saying the exact same thing that I was saying earlier this year and late last year is there's a disconnect between the total returns from office REITs and the private office real estate. He's mentioned that the data really shows that office REITs are down close to 50%. And I will show um, he's not wrong, especially in Canada and the US as well. Office REITs have been completely crushed. And to me, as talking about pension plans, it does make me wonder, like at, at, at some point, right? Like pension plans, they could potentially take some pretty hefty losses uh, in the future if they're forced to mark these property accurately and there's not a rebound in their value because I was talking about teachers earlier and they they reduced the value of some of their properties but it was just 
peanuts compared to what the, the market was showing. And there could be a couple of reasons for that. The first one is they're typically well capitalized, obviously, their pension funds, their institutional investors. And the second one is they can always say, well, there hasn't been many transactions in the private commercial real estate market or office uh, real estate. So it's hard to actually you know, know what the value is. And I'll just show here for our viewer what it looks like. And it's pretty, I mean, you look at Allied Property Reads Slate and you have, um, what's, sorry, I had uh, True North that are all kind of mostly office real estate in Canada. And they've been crushed since March of 2022 when rates started going up. Allied is down 42%. And I, I didn't actually take total returns here. I just wanted to show the actual value of the properties without counting in dividends. So Allied is down 42.6%. Slate is down 51.3%. And True North is down 55.5%. So I can guarantee you that institutions are not marking down their office real estate to that same extent. And that definitely can pose a risk going forward. Yeah, I would completely agree. Um, I, I do think it's it's going to be one of the biggest themes moving forward is how we start seeing the the revaluation, the writing down, and then also the um, the reconfiguration of these assets moving forward. Which I think is is kind of what we're going to talk about on 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 my show next um, and part two of this episode. Which is you know I'm I'm really of the, of the philosophy that the big bet available in the in the real estate market right now is what happens to the office and it, it, and there's it's a very divided camp i know some exceptionally smart people you know fund managers billionaires who are bullish on the return to work and think that it's and they're buying um these assets and they're eager and they're salivating to see these assets come up distressed and then there's a bunch of people you know similar wealth similar stature similar intelligence that have the exact opposite thesis and so i think we're going to explore that a little bit on on part two of this on the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. That's correct. No, I think we did pretty good in terms of splitting the time. So a couple, uh, couple big monologues <laughs> in there for sure. It was good. Yeah. I'm proud of both of us yeah. actually. Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, before we switch over to the other show, I, I don't know about you, but I probably put like 10 hours of research in all of this, uh, at least just looking through things. And um, I think people know me, you know me pretty well, too. Like, I, I hate not being prepared and doing research on stuff. And we had a Twitter space together. And I think he asked me a question. I'm like, oh, I'm not done my research. I don't want to yeah. throw like you know, information and just kind of wing it. So that's, um, but it's been so far, it's been really fun. I'm looking forward to part two on the Canadian real estate investor podcast. Um, we'll, we'll make sure to let everyone know when they come out on Twitter with our Canadian, uh, real estate and, uh, Canadian investor Twitter handle. So at CDN underscore investing, I'm at fiat underscore underscore iceberg. Dan, what's your handle again? Uh, Daniel underscore Foch, F-O-C-H. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And remember the uh, pronunciation. Don't don't try to say it differently. He wants <laughs> it that way. <laughs> okay. See you all over on that to uh, your feed. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.